Dave Willem, our go-to man when it comes to Tongat. Sure, Dave, just uh, by way of background for those who haven't been following the Tongat story that closely, you were the whistleblower uh, some years ago when you uh, did your analysis as a chartered accountant, did your analysis of the company and uh, went to the board of directors and said, something's going wrong here. Yeah, it, it, I guess whistleblower, uh, analyst, uh, I researched the company, um, unfortunately didn't see, I saw some stuff that was really concerning at an accounting level. Um, the, the numbers didn't make sense. In a nutshell, what was happening is that expenses, cash that was being spent was being capitalized. So that made the profits look better. But assets, unless they can be realized into cash, are not assets. And so eventually the problem started to mount and mount. And eventually with an enormous amount of debt, assets that weren't really assets, income that had, or profits that had not really been profits and dividends paid and, and obviously executives rewarded, it all came crumbling down, which is a, a real tragedy for a company that's over 100 years old. If you look back on it, I guess if you were a hedge fund uh, manager, what you would have done back then is just go short. You know, they'd sell Tongot shares that you didn't own and knowing that it would implode at some point in time, given your analysis. Was it ever part of your thinking? Uh, or if not, which clearly it wasn't, what was it that made you go to the board? And I, I suppose it's, I mean, you know, investors, whether they're going long or short, are looking to, you know, beat the market, be better than the market, or I guess out, uh, fox the market. Um in this case, it's quite a small company, so I don't think um, I don't think we've seen much net short interest because, you know, you can get uh, net short squeezes and get into technical stuff. I, I don't think this is the stock that really lent itself to to being shorted. Um, my interest was really I saw a company that I was I knew well, I had a family connection to it um, from past generations, and it just concerned me that a company that was was the largest private employer of um, of wage earning people up the north coast was, you know, in trouble, and that really concerned me. About four hundred thousand people are dependent on this industry. Fast forward to yesterday, when we had a statement coming out of the company. Uh, I know we've over the past few months we've communicated, but you've been a bit reluctant to comment again. What makes you happy to talk to me now? And look, I, I guess one always has to be careful to. To, to talk when you feel you have something to say or to add that can help the situation. I, I think initially my, my commentary was to expose and, be, and create awareness, but then management and the board had to be given some space and time to, to implement a strategy. Uh, in the last few months, I've been increasingly concerned that we're almost three years down the track now, and I'm not seeing really operational improvements. Um, I'm not seeing a real turnaround. Yes, there have been assets sold, there's been debt paid down. Um, but I'll be honest, I'm not seeing a whole lot of operational improvement. And I'll touch on that in a second. But what really, I guess, concerned me was the sequence of events that they announced a capital raise in a closed period. They then announced the interim results just before the Christmas period, giving very little time for a proper engagement around what is now looking like a reverse takeover of the company. Because there, if one looks at the shareholder register, there's about nearly 50% of the shares are held by individuals or private investors who are relatively small. And they've been asked to pay possibly as high as six or seven times their current investment in, in following their rights. Now, 
anyone who knows how rights work, you can price them as low as you, can, as you like because that's how it works. You can go 20, 30, 40% discount to market value. And those shareholders who simply can't follow their rights or don't have the financial means are squeezed out with a potentially massive dilution effect. And what we have is a, a underwriter, and I don't really have too much to say about the underwriters themselves. If this was Warren Buffett underwriting the deal, I'd probably have some concerns with the way it's been done because I think it allows a very large shareholder, controlling shareholder, to take control of the company without the establishment of a fair price. There's no real fair and reasonable here. There's no establishment of a fair price and a negotiation of a fair price. And I think we're going to see this shareholder, this underwriter, own more than 50% of the company for probably less than 2 billion rand, um, which I think is, uh, is I, I'm just not sure is fair play and I don't think it's right. Does it not also tell us that Tongot's in deeper trouble than we might have imagined? Tongard is in deep trouble. If we look at these results, um, what we've got left, um, they sold the crown jewels of the starch business. So we have a sugar business with three operations, South Africa, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is probably the best operation, but troubled with political and hyperinflation and the the difficulty of accessing any of that cash. So on the face of it, it's, it's a very, very good operation that produces nearly half a million tons of sugar a year and in good times and in more stable political times is a very, very, very valuable asset. Mozambique is steadily coming along, produces about 200,000 tons. South Africa, which has always been the, the, the mainstay, should have had an absolute bumper year this year. They should have produced about, uh, according to my, my, the feedback we get from the farmers unions and farmers associations and, and, and market experts, they should have harvested about five and a quarter to five and a half million tons of cane. They left behind in the fields approximately 1.1 million tons of cane. Now, anyone knows cane is something that is useless unless it's crushed. It's not like you can't repurpose it. You can't take it to market. Um, so there's a, there's an, the farmers are really struggling. More than a million tons of cane was left behind in the off-season, which is from now till April or beginning of April. And that will have a permanent loss to the farmers. It will be a permanent loss to Tongot because you never really catch up. The mill runs 24-7. And essentially what happened is I think the, the operational management of the mill got um, neglected and maintenance was poor. There were a lot of down days. They put it down to COVID and the, the rights, but I don't believe that's a, a fair attribution of the reasons. I think there was just overall poor management, 20 to 25% loss of production. So that 100,000 tons of sugar is worth about a billion rand in simple terms of which about two-thirds would go to the farmers. So the farmers have lost out on a very, very significant amount of money, which they're all losing and losing money right now, which is tragic, 20,000 plus farmers. And it cost Tonga three to 400 million. So these results would have been very different had there been, I think, a operational focus on the company. And, and I, I just fear, and I'm sad, that that seems to have been lacking while I guess this restructuring and the asset sales have been taking place. They did bring in a highly rated uh, manager from South African breweries, but again, it's a brewer, not a not a farmer, not an agricultural um, um, executive. Might this be coming home to to bite the the board of Tongot now? And look, you know, I obviously don't have 
access to the day-to-day operations. But what I do hear and what I hear from people is that, yeah, there has been some unhappiness. I think there was an expectation that a manager is a manager. And people who know the sugar industry know it's a very, very specific industry. The mill's got to run 24-7. It's like a power station. It's no different to Eskom. You've got to feed coal and you've got to feed sugarcane. It's the same thing. It's got to run every day, all day. And um, I think, I mean, what we do know is that that particular individual seems to be sidelined and there's a new guy being put in. And I'll be honest, I'm not quite sure whether the new guy is going to be uh, a guy who's going to keep the mills running 24-7. It needs operators. So what about the former executives who clearly did at least know how to keep the mill going, although they, they were not squeaky clean when it comes to the financials, Peter Stauder and, and his team. It appears as though the Tongard board is still hell-bent on uh, attacking these guys, bringing them to book. Uh, is that a, a, a your impression as well? I think um, I'm not sure one could necessarily say, although it would be dangerous territory to say Peter Stoudy kept the mills going. I think there was an old guard of people who came through a an industry that had gone back nearly 100 years of very well-managed succession, uh, people who were, you know, kind of engineers. You need lots of engineers to be monitoring this thing. I'm not sure Peter Stoudy was really that person, but I guess he left them alone. But we do know that production in South Africa has been falling. From 99, it was a million tons of sugar, and it's down to half a million now. So there has been a structural degradation of the SA Sugar, Tongard SA Sugar operation for a long, long time. And and what Peter did was kept throwing money at the problem by refinancing the farmers, re-establishing cane roots that had failed. There were some drought problems that had really had been difficult in the mid-20s, 2015 area. But he just kept throwing money at the problem, kept overcapitalizing. So I'm not, I don't think one can say that Peter knew how to run the sugar business. He just reported numbers that appeared like it was been well run. Uh, he, he falsified the numbers. There's no question about that. So is it likely, in your opinion, that uh, there will be a day of reckoning for him in the courts? Well, the, the, I think the justice process has to follow. Um, I mean, it's very hard. I think it's dangerous to judge things from, uh, you know, outside the courts. But from what I've seen, is, is, was he guilty and was his direct management team guilty of falsifying the numbers knowingly and willingly? I've got no doubt about that. And I guess I'm putting my neck on the line, but I have no doubt that the numbers were falsified. Did they misrepresent the assets and the profits of the company? No doubt. What were their motives? Well, time will tell. Um, But I have no doubt about that. However, I would say this went on for nearly eight years. And this is, as as one of my colleagues says, this was a, a, a first year, like a grade one fraud. This is not like Steinhoff that was highly sophisticated, took incredibly smart people all around the world to do it. This was elementary grade one fraud, falsifying the balance sheet. The auditors did not pick this up for eight years. And I I really question why are the auditors still not being held account? You know, the industry earns hundreds of billions in, in audit fees and directors earn billions and billions in director's fees and, and all the rest. And, you know, I don't feel great about my alumni being sued, but I do feel great about the robustness of the audit assurance industry being held to account. Otherwise, why are we paying for it? 
And, and that figure of 450 million that is being thrown around as a civil suit against the former uh, executives, how's that compiled or how's that brought, uh, brought into, the, into the picture? I think it's a. I think if I was a little bit cynical, the timing of it was a bit interesting because there was a somewhat hard-hitting article put out yesterday by Tim Cohen, um, and he and the sort of this announcement came out later in the day. So I, I don't know. I'll be honest. I'm a bit of a cynic on that. I, we know. I know because I have the register, the share register. Peter Stardy actually kept nearly all his shares. Uh, in fact, he kept all his shares. So all the profits and the bonuses he converted into shares fell 95%. So he's got a 400-odd thousand shares that are worth about 2 million rand. That's that's his, you know, 70 million drop to 2 million gone, unfortunately. Well, um, yeah, for anybody trying to reclaim. So they say they've got his pension. I'm not sure how that works. I think they're blowing hot air on that one. You know, the auditors are the people that got paid enormous money to provide assurance, and for eight years, they did not pick up these very basic, simple frauds. I think they should be, I, I don't understand why they've not yet engaged. And they say because they're trying to finalize the statutory audit. That, to me, is a conflict of interest. If you have a claim against somebody, it is your responsibility to, you don't delay um, arresting someone because they're taking your kid to school or because they're doing something that's important for you. If they're guilty of something, you arrest them, you charge them, or you bring action against them. And the consequences are sometimes uncomfortable. And that is unfortunately life. It's sometimes on a board, you've got to do uncomfortable things. So had I been on this board, I would not have accepted that. I would have pushed hard. Because whether they're guilty or not, just bring them to book, because shareholders are losing now. And pretty much they're going to be diluted by probably an amount similar to what could be claimed from Deloitte given the circumstances. We had Tongart in our portfolio, in the business portfolio, for a period of time. Then came the Natal, uh, KwaZulu-Natal riots. Straight after that, uh, I took a view that, whoa, the uh, the property values in KZN are going to take a heck of a long time to recover. I know you from the province, as I am as well, and uh, and we, we won't go down that line, but it, it, it was a view that we took at the time, and as it happens, has been rather fortuitous. But it, is there any value being ascribed by the new controlling shareholders or the Zimbabwean family that are coming in to take control of Tonga to all that land on the KZN North Coast? Remember, the price hasn't been set. So, I mean, what they put as value, I mean, that's what concerns me about this vote next week is that they are asking shareholders to authorize five, three, nearly five billion new shares, million new shares, sorry, sorry, billion. And there are 135 million shares. So that's a 33 times increase in authorized share capital. Once that vote goes through, there is absolutely nothing stopping the board from setting the rice issue price at 50%, 60% below. There's no legal basis to stop them. And they could set it at where they like. And they say they'll set it in conjunction with the underwriters. And so they, they kind of can set the price. And that concerns me uh, from a governance point of view. Not, not Rutland's, it's the board. Why are the board being so coy? about asking for a checkbook, and we'll tell you the amount later. I think that's very concerning to me, especially given this is not a one-for-one one rights issue. It's like an eight, seven or eight-for-one. So on the land property, a land, yeah, the land is very valuable. There's no doubt. Uh, how valuable is a question of how long you want to wait? Um, I took a drive 
week and a half ago up that area. And yeah, there's some really good development going on around Sabaya. And, but most of that's been, that was land sold before. So that's not Tonga's benefit. There's a lot of land, but it's going to take a long, long, long time. And, and I just use very simple numbers um, per 100 hectares, which is about an annual kind of bite that they can do. You get about 7 million probably per hectare, uh, about 3 million of establishment costs. So there's about 400 million a year to be made from that property over the next, say, 20 years. But that doesn't come to a PV of 8 billion. That's maybe a nominal value of 8 billion. So if I put a PV value to that, I'm probably seeing maybe 4 billion. But even that is like a big, there's a lot of factors, but it's worth a lot of money. And I guess it will be realized by somebody at some point. And the Radlands, a Zimbabwean family, clearly they would have a good feel for the Zimbabwean assets of Tongart. And perhaps that's what's appealing to this family what do you know about them you see you haven't you haven't spoken with them and they they do appear to be very low profile Alec, yeah, i haven't spoken to them directly i don't think that would be appropriate um i obviously i've done my i've done my research and as have a number of people um there have been some reports issued um Tonga say they did a detailed due diligence they asked pwc to do that um I'm not so much concerned about the Rudlands, as I said, for me to judge them. I do question, I mean, this is not a family that has an obvious source of its wealth, other than what we read about. So it's not like, you know, PSG, where you can say, well, yes, we know Yanni Motani's got a 30-year track record, we know what he does, or, or Remgro, I mean, these types of organizations that have got deep, deep histories. This is an organization that's come out of the blue. It's a foreign entity. It's got some questions around where it got its money and how it's made its money. They made a claim about their agri-processing. I happened to go to those two companies that they referenced. The wine is insignificantly small. It's got a balance sheet of about $10 million and made losses. The other one uh, looks like it's been making very big losses and, in fact, was suspended for some time, just been unsuspended and made significant losses in the last two years. So these are not agri-processing companies. They are little bets that they've taken. They are a logistics business and a cigarette business, and that's what they do. Now, I don't know what that does in terms of strategic input to the group. I What my concern is that there hasn't been a transparent engagement. We've never seen these people. They haven't really sold. You know, if a big, if a Remgro was coming in, I think you'd hear the leadership of Remgro saying, well, this is what we can bring. This is what we're going to add as a reference, a shelter of reference. Uh, this has got socioeconomic importance, I think, this industry. It employs a lot of people, 20,000 farmers who are very indebted to the banks and the economic prospects of an entire coastal region. And we, we're kind of accepting a, a takeover without going to the TRP, without going to competition properly, or they're trying to get waivers for that stuff. I just don't think it's good governance, and that's what I'm questioning. 